It's 1208. This is Jeff Rack, WTMJ. Now, Eric, before you go away, I, I just I, I wonder if we can stipulate on a couple things. For example, I am a child of the 70s. Okay. And there were some good things that came out of the 70s, but clothing styles were not <laughs> one of them. Polyester leisure suits. Long hair. I, I have... I have I have. I still carry around my ID from when I turned eighteen because back in the seventies in Wisconsin, there were not picture driver's licenses. What the driver's license was a paper driver's license. So if you wanted to drink, you had. And the drinking age was eighteen yep, at the yep, time. Yep. You had to go down somewhere, pay a bunch of separate money, and you got a, a separate ID card that had your picture on it. I still have that, so you can see what I looked like when I was eighteen years old. And the hairstyle. Let me say this: it was not flattering. Disco, okay? I mean, disco, not the greatest yeah, yeah. thing, you know. Did I mention leisure suits? All right. And there's all sorts of other stuff. Great music came out of the seventies and things. But as far as oh, okay, avocado rugs. That was the big thing. You know, everybody had like everybody did their house in avocado green. You know, like green shag rugs. It just um, you know, panel station wagons. They're just, you know, um, AMC, AMC Pacers. Um, you know, it just there. There were just all all sorts of Ford Pintos. Okay, wow. there there were all sorts of things that came out of the seventies that maybe they they belong back into the seventies. Now, where am I going with this? All right. So the Milwaukee Brewers lose two out of three games to the Chicago White Sox o- over the weekend, and and I mean I I mean it's a blip. They're having a great season and stuff. You you can't expect them to win all the time, mm-hmm. but at the same time, I don't mind them losing. But you should at least look good while you're losing. Oh no, those you powder didn't... blue oh, uniforms. No. Honest to God. Now, th- those are, of course, the uniforms they wore in the 70s and the early 80s. Oh, I thought it that, looked great. It was awesome seeing the retro. That lo- that lo- retro. They looked awful oh, in the God, 70s and early 80s, that, that, that powder blue. And then they wore them for this weekend series, and they lost two out of three. I think that there is a cause and effect there. Oh, I think those man. guys walking around the dugout knew that they looked absolutely awful. And look, I understand. I I was I was at those World Series games. I was at the games in '82 when they beat um, the California Angels to go to the World Series. So I was I mean I was there. I understand the lure of tradition, but the, the truth is, whether it was my long hair or polyester leisure suits or disco or powder blue uniforms, I, just I, I I liked it. I disagree with you. I liked seeing the old Sox uniforms and the old Brewers. There, there is a reason they stopped wearing those in 1982 or 1983, and some things are just best just kind of left there. But anyways, all right, well, Eric says yes. I say no. <laughs> leave leave that portion of the 70s buried. Those powder blue uniforms belong with polyester leisure suits and, um, again, the Ford Pintos. Just leave them, leave them there. That's my explanation for why they lost two out of three. I mean, I just think that they, they felt that they were they were silly. And I understand there's an effect of nostalgia, but never going to convince me of that. We start off today's show like we start off every show. Three big things. I call it the snowflake um, meltdown, the, the snowflake revolt. Now, I get that snowflakes don't like to be called snowflakes. Oh, how dare you make fun of us? We're offended. We we should be able to be offended all the time. Well, all right. Well, get over yourselves. But here's the latest example of that. There's a guy who's running for uh, the Republican nomination to be the governor of Kansas, heavily Republican state. Um, his name is Chris Kobach, um, and he is very, very much 
a proponent of the Second Amendment. He is unapologetic about that. So he's riding in a parade over the weekend. Um, it's the old Shawnee Days Parade, which is named after the, the Kansas City suburb. So he's riding in an old military-style Jeep. I mean, the kind of Jeep, I don't know, you would have seen World, you see the World War II movies or you see MASH, you know, those kind of Jeeps that they drove around. Except this Jeep is painted red, white, and blue. It's got stars, it's got stripes, all that. And on the back of the Jeep, it has a replica um, machine gun. Now, I mean, think of this again. Think of the think of the the movies I was watching. What movie I was watching the other week? Oh, Kelly's Heroes, set in World War II. You know, they, they've got a jeep. You know, it's the it's you've got the the gun that's mounted in the back of the jeep. Think of uh, there was an old TV show, Rat Patrol. You know, where they were the soldiers were in the desert fighting. So it, it's not an active gun. It's a replica gun, but it's a military jeep. Rep, uh, it's a military jeep, like kind of circa, again, the 40s or the 50s. It's painted red, white, and blue, and it's got a replica machine gun mounted in the back. It's not a real machine gun, but it is a replica machine gun. And this guy who is running for, he's the Secretary of State, he's running for governor, he's riding in the parade in the the jeep. Um, well, this generates a ton of a ton of controversy. He sends out a tweet saying, had a blast riding the old Shawnee Days parade in this souped-up Jeep with a replica gun. Those who want to restrict the right to keep and bear arms are deeply misguided. The only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. Well, needless to say, people are outraged, or at least some people are outraged. A guy named Johnny Lewis sends a text. Why was that necessary, sir? My child didn't need that today. Don't care what your position is on the Second Amendment. That was completely unnecessary. Um, then you have other people just outraged. The city of Shawnee has since issued an apology for having the guy attend the event and causing upset over the display of a large replica gun. Please know that the safety of our residents is always our highest priority, and we apologize if this made anyone feel unsafe or unsettled. We will be taking steps in the future to try to ensure something similar does not happen again. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. People are outraged. People are shocked. People are apparently sending in texts saying, oh, my gosh, you know, my child was, I don't know, scared or whatever because you saw the guy driving in the Jeep that had the replica gun. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Again, this was a souped-up replica military Jeep. It was a replica gun. People were appalled, or at least some people were appalled. All right, is this a snowflake situation, or did people have the right to be offended, scared, unsettled, uncomfortable, whatever words you want to choose? 414-799-1620. For his part, the candidate is not backing down at all, and frankly, I don't think he should. To me, this is a classic example of the snowflake revolt that's out there. 414-799-1620. Should we apologize? Should he apologize? Should the parade organizers being have to apologize for this particular vehicle? 414-799-1620. We discuss next. 1216. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 
1224, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ, Lori texts, how much of a snowflake do you have to be to feel unsafe around a fake gun? Another text, interesting, there was one of these gunner jeeps that you're describing in the Oconomowoc parade on Memorial Day, and I have not heard one person being offended. Well, maybe you haven't heard about it yet. Patty says, if you're so offended or upset, leave. You have that choice. Tony says, it's a jeep thing that snowflakes don't understand. Yeah, I mean, just... It's for goodness sakes. I mean, it's a replica Jeep. The guy is trying to make a point. But this idea that people are offended by seeing this type of thing, you really, really, really desperately kind of need to get over yourself. Let me make sense out of the Supreme Court's decision today involving the gay couple who wanted the man to bake the cake for them. As you have probably heard, by a 7-2 to two vote, five conservatives and two liberals, the decision was overturned. Here's the background on this quickly, if you haven't heard it. You have this gay couple that go into the Masterpiece Cake Shop, and they say, we want you to bake us a cake. The man stops them and says, I I don't do cakes for gay weddings. I'm sorry, my religion teaches me that this is wrong. You'll have to go elsewhere. They, by the way, do go elsewhere, so they get their cake. But they decide that they are going to make this a test case They go to the Colorado Equal Rights Commission, and they complain. They say, the man didn't bake our our cake. Colorado has a statute saying that you can't can't discriminate against people based on sexual orientation. And the Colorado Equal Rights Commission finds that this man violated those rules. um, And they, they say, okay, here, we're going to fine you. The case goes up through the courts, and it gets to the United States Supreme Court. The United States Supreme Court today overturned that ruling, but they did it in a very, very narrow fashion. I have read the entire opinion, so so you don't have to. But in, in essence, um, here here's what's going on. The Supreme Court says that, you know, in, in this country, um, you have the right to practice your religion and in you have the right also to not be forced to do things which are going to violate your religion and in this particular case they say you've got this tension you've got the colorado statute that says you can't discriminate against people based on sexual orientation against the first amendment essentially right that you should be able to practice your religion Now, what the Supreme Court did, and this is why it's a narrow decision, they didn't say religious values are always going to trump a stat, no pun intended, are always going to trump, you know, a statute that protects people based on their sexual orientation. What it said, though, is when we look at this record, the master, the baker, didn't get a fair shake. Because if you look at the transcript of the hearing before the Colorado Equal Rights Commission, it is clear that they were biased and hostile towards the man's religion. And what the Supreme Court says is that there has to be a neutral arbitrator of this. You have to recognize that there are competing interests here, and you have to look at them in an objective fashion. Supreme Court says, we look at this record, and they were actually mocking the man's religion. There was clearly, he never had a chance because the equal rights commissioners had pretty much just simply decided, well, your religion, 
your religious beliefs are wrong, your religious beliefs are biased. And so they essentially say the guy didn't get a fair shake. And that's why they overturned the case. They left open the question of with a different set of facts or if there was a different record in front of the Equal Rights Commission, would the result potentially be different? What they're just saying is the guy didn't get a fair hearing because of the bias of the commissioners, pure and simple. So this isn't the broad ruling that I think people hope for one way or the other. It's very, very narrow, and it's based on the facts of the case where they do acknowledge that, you know, your, your religious beliefs and your right to practice your religion have to be taken into account. So what they're saying is that didn't happen here. It was a biased proceeding. Sometime in the future, maybe it would be possible to have the same set of facts and come up with a different result. So it's narrow. Um, I know both sides are maybe going to – some the, the people who are, again, don't think that he should have been able to say no are going to say, oh, this is very, very narrow – um, other people are going to say, oh, this is an absolute victory for religious freedom. It's neither one of those. It is a very, very narrow case. And my guess is a similar sort of issue will find its way back to the Supreme Court over the course of the next couple years. But for the moment, based on a limited ruling, the Masterpiece Cake Shop ends up winning. And it does demonstrate, again, the hostility and the anti-religious bias that you do see on some of these local commissions, and you sure sound, found it in the, Cal, in the Colorado Equal Rights Commission, and that's maybe the big story of this. All right, when we come back, should President Trump pardon himself? And for those of you who think that police should never chase, just let folks drive into the night, there's a horrible story from Wauwatosa that shows you the danger of that. 1236, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Yeah, um, there are 10 Democrats who have, are running for governor. There was actually more than that that were running, but not everybody could get their signatures. So there's 10 candidates who are going to be on the ballot for the primary election in August. And there really isn't a clear front runner. There, there, there's just not. There, there's 10, and I think you, you, you could probably eliminate one or two as being fringe candidates. But essentially, I think you throw a blanket over like six or seven, and it, and it could be anybody that emerges out of that six or seven. So the Wisconsin Broadcasters Association is going to host a debate um, on July 27th, which is just in advance of the, the early August primary. So they've decided, well, we don't want all 10 there because we think it will be a distraction, hmm. um, even though all 10 are going to be on the ballot. So I, first of all, I, I think you got to let all 10 in. I, I mean – they're all running for office. They're all serious candidates, at least at this point. So I think you should let all 10 in. But then they decide, okay, we're not going to let all 10 in. We're going to winnow this out. So how do you winnow it out? Well, here's their solution. We're going to look at the Marquette University Law School poll released closest to the July 27th debate. Not an average of polls, not a series of polls, but one poll based and again, I, I understand for years people thought the Marquette University Law School poll was kind of the gold standard. If the Marquette University Law School poll um, really was a gold standard, Russ Feingold would be the U.S. Senate and Hillary Clinton would be the president. I mean, I'm just, I, I am just saying Marquette Law School poll uh, gets stuff wrong a lot. And if I'm just putting it from the perspective of forget Democrat or Republican. If I was one of these Republican candidates, if I was a Republican candidate and there were 10 people running for U.S. Senate 
and you were told that, all right, your ability to participate in this debate is going to be based on one poll that has had reliability, just one poll conducted by an outfit that's had reliability issues over the last several years, like most polls have, I would be screaming bloody murder and threatening to go in and, and sue. On top of that, it gets it gets even weirder. Um, they, they do say that in order to qualify, you're going to have to have raised at least $250,000. So presumably, even if you're in the top four, but you haven't raised $250,000, where that number comes from, I don't know, you're not going to be able to participate. And then, here's my favorite part about it. Let's say you're tied. Let's say that you've got four candidates who come out at 9%. You've got one that comes in at 15, one that comes in at 12, and one that at four that come in at 9%. Not beyond the realm of possibility, but you're only going to allow two of those four to participate in the debate. How do you decide which of the two candidates make it out of those four that all have 9%? Well, then they're going to look at whoever has raised the most money. That's going to be the, the deciding thing. So if Gru and I, my producer, are tied at 9% and he's raised $250,001 and I've raised 250000 he gets to participate because he's raised $1 more. I, look, I, I don't have all the answers as to how to run this particular railroad, but this is a – it seems to me – the and I appreciate that you want to winnow this down, but this seems to me to be a pretty pretty dumb thing – and fundamentally unfair. I mean, again, what what about the candidate sitting there saying, okay, well, you know, you've got 10 candidates, any one of eight who could realistically win, and you're saying, I don't get to participate in the debate that gets all this free TV because I've got 10% in this poll, which may or may not be extremely flawed, might be right, might not, but I've got 10%, and I don't get to participate but somebody who's got 11 or 12% does, ah, they, they really, I, I think, should figure out a better way. My guess is one or more candidates will probably sue when they end up getting excluded. But from my perspective, the you know Wisconsin Broadcasters Association, I think the solution is maybe multiple debates. I mean, now that's what they did, remember, with the Republicans. And again, it wasn't based on one poll, which may or may not be accurate. But remember, they took an average of polls when you had all those Republican candidates who were running for president. And then what they did is they had essentially a couple debates. You had the top-tier debate, and then you had like what they called the, the children's table, a separate debate involving the candidates who didn't make it into the, the top. That would seem to be to be a fundamentally more fair way to do it. Now, again... I don't care. This isn't my side of the aisle. I don't care. And if they end up excluding, you know, one or two candidates who might end up being the best ones to challenge Governor Walker, well, okay, am I going to lose any sleep over it? No. But from a perspective of fundamental fairness, it just strikes me that this is a kind of butt-backwards way to do things rather than giving everybody the chance to participate in one or more debates. And if you're relying on, again, a poll... One single poll that's going to have potentially all sorts of flaws because we know it's it's been flawed in the past. Marquette University Law School poll, just like a lot of polls, has gotten a lot of things wrong. But now you're going to this is going to be the gold standard that decides who gets to participate in the debates. I think the Wisconsin Broadcasters Association really needs to take a step back and figure out a better way to do this. Like I say, it's not my side of the aisle, but if it was, um, 
I, I think you'd have Republicans who were viable candidates and told that they can't participate who would legitimately be screaming, screaming bloody murder. When we come back, they let him get away, and now somebody's dead. Stick around. 1242, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 1246, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. A lot of people are just kind of wading in on this. It, see, this is simple. You got 10 candidates who want to be the, are competing with each other to challenge for the right to take on Scott Walker. There's really not one or two leading candidates. Like I say, throw a blanket on them. And I, I don't think anybody's, I don't think anybody knows who is going to emerge from this. Um, one of our texters, there's 10 of them. Have two debates at the same time, five candidates at each. Have one to be broadcast on one network, the second debate on another network. Um, then the next night they might rerun the debate but switch networks. That way everyone gets the same amount of time and people can choose which station to watch. Yeah, I mean, that's those are the things that make sense And try instead of trying to arbitrarily exclude people. And I understand, you know, ten people on the stage at once, everybody only gets a couple minutes. It's hard for people to break through. But, again, what if you're... I, I just don't think there's going to be a leading candidate. And I don't think the difference between somebody who gets, and again, there's a margin of error to polls. If you think I'm picking on the Marquette University Law School poll, they'll even tell you that there's a margin of error, 4 or 5% or whatever. So, you know, somebody that's got 13% of the vote gets in. Somebody who's got 13% of the thing in the poll gets in. Somebody who gets 10% doesn't, even if it's within the margin of error. That just seems to me to be really a dumb way to run this process and it's not the democrats it's the wisconsin broadcasters association so i think they need to figure out a better way to do this all right on this program we talk unfortunately too much about people who run from police this became a phenomena around here back in 2010 when mayor tom barrett in milwaukee and the then milwaukee police chief ed flynn decided that they did not want to allow Milwaukee police officers to chase people who fled. That was based on a couple instances, which were tragic, where in the process of the chase, um, innocent people got hurt. And, and I, I, I understand it. It was well-intentioned, but it, it was a disastrous policy. Because what happened is the word got out, you can run from the cops. And the chase policy was essentially, and, and most times you don't know why people run. That, that's it. All you know is you're the police officer, you pull somebody over, you put on the bubble lights, they take off. You don't know why they're running. You don't know if they've got guns in the car or a body in the trunk. You don't know why they're running. But this became the rule. The bad guys in Milwaukee, the thugs, the punks, they knew that the cops wouldn't chase them. So you blow through a red light, a police officer tries to pull you over, you exceed, you go to 90 miles an hour, they're not allowed to chase. You're dealing drugs, and that's a big problem now, mobile drug houses. You're dealing drugs out of the car, the police try to pull you over, you just floor it and flee, they wouldn't chase you. And that, I think, has led to this feeling of invincibility, and I think a lot of the thugs and the punks haven't gotten the word that you shouldn't run from cops yet. And so that's why you see... So many chases on a regular basis. I mean, I swear, if I chose, I think I could start off every show, every show or almost every show I do with a chase alert, a story about somebody, either in the city of Milwaukee or some suburbs, police officer tries to pull over a car and the car takes off. And then, you know, inevitably what happens, the car takes off and either the bad guy gets caught, gets away, or if they, you know, ditch the car somewhere, then they get out and run. I mean, this is... This is what passes for, again, criminal behavior. 
Well, here's what happened on Friday afternoon, and it is a horrible story. Um, what happened? A little bit around three o'clock, a little before three o'clock, a Wauwatosa police officer stops a black sedan in the uh, 9,000 block of West North Avenue. If you can kind of picture that area out there. So they stop the car. Traffic stop. What happens then is that after the car stops originally, and then I think the officer gets out of his car, not sure, but after it stopped, the car then takes off. It's stopped by the police. Sedan starts fleeing eastbound, right, driving at a high rate of speed, just floors it to take off. The Wauwatosa police officer makes the decision that they're not going to initiate a pursuit of the sedan when it flees. They're going to let the guy drive off. And I don't know what the different factors were, but they decided that they weren't going to chase it. Maybe it was the time of day. It's Friday afternoon. You're on North Avenue, you know, 90th and North. So it's a busy street. Whatever. The Wauwatosa police officer made the decision they're not going to chase. And some people might say, well, this is safe. You know, what's going to happen? You know, you catch the guy another time. Well, here's what happened. Eight blocks later, while driving at a high rate of speed, fleeing from the traffic stop, the sedan veered into oncoming traffic near 82nd Street, collided head-on with a westbound minivan, killing the driver. Um, This is a Wauwatosa woman who was coming the other way. So what happens is you've got the car fleeing from the cops. It's not a chase. They've pulled him over, and he's just decided the driver's taken off. He kind of loses control, crosses the center line or whatever, smacks into this minivan, head-on, kills the woman. You know, he ends up getting taken to the hospital, and now he's presumably going to be charged. I am not critical of the Wauwatosa police at all for, for deciding not to chase. I mean, that's a, they, they, you consider the different facts and circumstances. It does underscore, though, what happens around here nowadays and the fact that people feel that they can run with impunity. But it also demonstrates what happens when people do, in fact, run, that bad things occur, and it's why the police need to chase, because just allowing somebody to drive off at a high rate of speed isn't a guarantee that, you know, people are going to be safe. It's not a guarantee that the person's driving and 10 blocks later they're going to slow down and drive responsibly. No, you need to get these people that are breaking the law and are willing to flee off the street. But here's where I want to go with this. I don't know about you, but I, for one, am sick to death of these stories of people who get hurt because you have bad guys and thugs and punks and sleazebags that don't pull over, decide we're going to flee, we're going to drive cars at speeds of 80, 90, 100, 120 miles an hour, we're going to run from the cops, you know, once if we do get caught, if we hit somebody along the way, too bad. Fleeing from the police is as a general rule, it is a, it is the most minor felony we have. It is a class I felony. Now, if you cause serious bodily harm, it, it changes. But fleeing from the police, while a felony, it's a felony that's not often it's not always prosecuted, and it's a felony that doesn't result in people going to prison all the time. Matter of fact, it doesn't result in people going to prison a lot of the time. Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. If you run from the police, if you flee from the police in a vehicle, I think there should be a mandatory minimum three-year prison sentence. 
if you run from the cops when you are caught, whatever else you've done, you go to prison for three years minimum simply because of the act of fleeing. Now, will that stop people from fleeing? Maybe. But will it make our streets safer? Because my guess is a lot of people that run from the cops, that's why they do it, and they do it on multiple occasions. Mandatory minimum sentence. Three years in prison for running from the police, regardless of whether you hit somebody or not. That's a whole different story. But just the act of running, I think you should be sent to prison for three years. No excuses, no parole, no pass go. Don't get your $200. Go straight to a pond. 414-799-1620. We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. 1254, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's 109. This is Jeff Wagner. So glad to have you with us. A number of people are asking me if they've released the name of the guy on Friday afternoon that was stopped by the Wauwatosa police officer, took on 90th and North, took off. They didn't chase him, but he was driving at a high rate of speed. Eight blocks later, crosses the center line of North Avenue, slams into a vehicle, a minivan driven by a woman coming the other way. She's dead. They, they have not released the, the name of the person who drove away yet. My, my guess... And I do not know for certain, but my guess is when they do, you will find somebody who, well, probably had several contacts with the police and had a reason for fleeing the police, which, again, you know, if that's the case, goes back to my point about how I think it's a big deal when you run from the cops. And I I think mandatory jail time needs to be imposed before I I forget. I want to I want to mention something of something in the news over the weekend that kind of had a personal impact on me. There's a story in. There's a nice obituary in, in the Journal Sentinel today. Um, Charlie Krauss, who was a Milwaukee businessman, passed away after a, a battle with brain cancer o- over the weekend. Most people perhaps know, know Charlie. He was the owner of the Milwaukee Wave, the indoor soccer team, for a number of, of years. Um, ended up selling it uh, a few years back, but it was it was a it was a labor of love, and, and he did it. <laughs> I know he did it not to make money because I don't think there was any money to be made. He did it because he thought indoor soccer was important to the community, and you know he he underwrote it. He was a noted philanthropist. did did a lot of stuff with the Milwaukee Symphony, um, and, and had other you know pet causes as well. Just a, a very nice guy. Now I bring this up. Because I knew Charlie in a different, in a different way, and I, I sent out a tweet. If if you follow me, it's it's at Jeff Wagner six twenty. Charlie Krauss was my confirmation class teacher many 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 years ago. He he was a regular attendee at uh, St. Christopher's Episcopal Church in River Hills. That is the church that I grew up in, and. While I don't get there as often as I should, I, I still belong. I, I still I still belong. And and Charlie was just a fixture there. It was it was sort of interesting because um my wife Fran and I were, were at church a, a few weeks ago and, and there was Charlie and he was you knew, you knew he was, you know, going through this battle with, with cancer and he was sitting in his usual spot and um I had not seen him in a while, which reflects on the fact that I, I probably need to get back to church more often, but I, you know, I, I went up and and said hi to him, and he's he's one of those guys that o- over the years when I would run into him, I I would always say, well, Mr. Krause, and he'd say, oh, Jeff, call me call me Charlie, but it's it's kind of like doesn't matter how old you are 
when you you know you're dealing with like your 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 friend's parents. It doesn't matter if you're fifty or sixty years old. It, there's still always going to be Mr. So and So or Mr. So. He was always Mr. Krause to me. And and I went up and and we had just we had a nice conversation a couple weeks ago. And I knew he was sick. And it, it was interesting because my wife was just taken back because because Charlie remembered me like it was it was yesterday. He said. I still remember your con- and I don't know how many confirmation classes the man taught. He said, "I still remember your confirmation class." And I, re- you might not remember this, but we went. And he starts talking about we went on this retreat down to wherever we went on the retreat, and everybody had to do different responsibilities. And I understood your responsibility was giving the sermon, and I still remember that. And this is probably forty-five years ago or something. And my my wife kind of says, "Well, you really made an impression." And I said, "Yeah, I'm not sure if it was good or bad or whatever." But Charlie Krause was just just a great man. Um, and for people who came into contact with him, again, on the philanthropy side, um, with all his activities, or as the owner of the Milwaukee Wave, I just had an interesting, again, my, my reaction was different because he was, he was the guy that taught the confirmation class and was just the fixture at the church I grew up in. But he was just just a wonderful man. He passed away over the weekend after a, a courageous battle with cancer at the age of 85. And I didn't want the show to get away from me without just acknowledging the, the contributions this man made to the community. And um, I guess my message would be sail on, Mr. Krause, and um, thank you for everything. We'll be back in just a minute. It's 114, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's 117, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. So glad to have you with us. All right. I, I have spent most of my life living in, in southeastern Wisconsin. And I, I've seen a number of things come and go. Stuff that you thought were institutions that would never, ever leave, leave because, I don't know, times change, tastes change. Let me give you some examples. The circus parade used to be a really, really big deal. And now circus parade organizers always used to inflate the crowd size, but it doesn't matter. A lot of people came out to watch the circus parade. And the circus parade was a great thing, and it was a feature of, of the summer for years. And what happened is people just got tired of it. And this isn't a knock on the circus parade, but, you know, people had seen it. They, they wanted they, – they switched over to, to other things. There were other things that interested them, and ultimately the, the circus parade, you know, passed, you know, into the, the bank of, of giant fond memories. Another example, you had the uh, the golf tournament, and I, I, I will still always refer to it as the GMO, the Greater Milwaukee Open, and it was held at a number of locations before ultimately settling at Brown Deer Park, but it was a mainstay on the PGA Tour. Every year you had professional golfers. Now, part of the problem was it didn't draw the top tier of professional golfers, but you, you had you know golfers that would come in, and it was fun, and, and it, was, it was very cool to have you know, all the PGA golfers come to Milwaukee um, one, once a year. And they had a number of different sponsors over the year. At the end, you know, U.S. Bank picked up the tab, and, and they spent a ton of money in sponsoring the golf tournament. But what happened was people just didn't come out. The, the times changed, tastes changed, what, whatever. Not a knock on professional golf and certainly not a knock on the organizers, but there wasn't interest, and we moved on. And I think sometimes you have to realize that that is the reality. I did a very controversial topic. I think it was on Friday's show where, you know, we talked about the, maybe it was Thursday. We talked about the Mitchell Park domes, right? I, I the, you know, the domes have been an institution. The domes have been there since the mid 1960s. The problem is the domes are hemorrhaging money. There's not enough people that are going to the domes 
to support the ongoing cost of the domes. And, and I understand you don't necessarily want expect the domes to pay for themselves because they're part of a county park, but but they're losing money. And the bigger problem is it's not just that they're losing money and you need to have the taxpayers subsidize them. The problem is they're falling apart. And, and so what you need to do is decide, Do does Milwaukee County have – 50 or 60 or 70 million dollars or whatever it's going to take to do what needs to be done to keep the domes around. And if you spend 50, 60, 70 million dollars on the domes, you know, what does that mean? You've got to build a new safety building. That's a fire trap. That's falling down. You've got all the other things that are out there. Where is that money going to come from? And that's the question, for example, during the segment I did the other day. You know, people would say, well, I really like the domes. And I'd say, well, when did you go there? Well, I don't know. We, you know, we went there a few years ago. Well, yeah. Okay. Going there a couple of years ago isn't enough to support it. It's, and it might be a nice thing and it might be a wonderful thing. But, you know, tell me where you're going to get the $70 million. Well, I think it would be better spending that money than on the trolley. Well, okay, the trolley is the city, not the county. But putting that aside, even if I agree, that money's been spent on the trolley. Tell me where the dough is going to come from, and 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 nobody really has a good answer to that. So sometimes it's just I think we have to face the reality that it is time to move on, which brings me to what I want to discuss with you during this segment, and that is the Milwaukee Mile. The Milwaukee Mile is, of course, the racetrack at State Fair Park, right? And um, the Milwaukee Mile, at one point in time, it was an auto racing, was a big deal around here. You Typically, the Milwaukee Mile, you would have a, a race, you know, of the, the Indy cars, and you would have it the week after the Indy 500. And it used to draw lots and lots of people, and you had the national TV contract, and it was the it was a big big deal. Well, you know, auto racing, serious auto racing, IndyCar racing, etc., has been gone from Milwaukee for several years. They've had one promoter after another who's tried to get the auto racing starting started, and in general, they have failed. Um, some of the promoters were better than others, but even with good promoters. They weren't able to come up with, they weren't able to make money off of it. And as a result, that's why, I mean, you, you don't have, again, the Indy 500, you don't have the, the Indy cars operating there. And the reality is, because there's such a downstroke to bring the race back, I mean, to get the rights, you're talking millions of dollars just to get the rights to, to run that race before you've, you know, paid a dime in maintenance or things like that. I think most people objectively realize that even though they're wistful, even though they're nostalgic, you know, big-time auto racing isn't coming back to this racetrack. So, all right, let us assume that I understand they've got some, some minor uses that they, they use it. But, you know, you're not going to bring back you know, full-time racing. It's not going to be an ongoing success. So you've got the grandstands. You are paying a ton in debt service for this. You've got valuable property that's principally used as parking during the 11-day run of the state fair. I mean, it, it's essentially, it's a parking lot, but it's only a parking lot for 11 days. And then you have the grandstand where you set up the stage that you, you have, again, for the 11 days of the fair. But other than that, 
there's really not much that is being done with this. So this is back in the news because State Fair Park is now authorizing or they're planning to do a, a study of the idle racetrack to try to determine what what do we do, you know, moving what do we do moving forward? Um what do we do with the land? Um is it if we assume, is there any realistic chance that racing is going to come back? And the short answer to that is no. If so, if so, you know, what do we do? Can we continue to just allow this to sit there, again, being a parking lot for 11 days, and you have the grandstand there, you know, for the stage shows during the course of the fair? Is that the best use of this property? Or might we have to say, you know what, this is, maybe it's valuable land, maybe we need to turn it over to developers Maybe we can have a mix of retail and residential. What do you do with the Milwaukee Mile? Our number, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And again, I feel free to disagree with me on this. And I understand I understand nostalgia and the pull of that. But I think realistically, you're not going to see auto racing at, on, on the level that we had back at the fair. At which point in time, you have to decide what is the best use of that property. And using that property as a parking lot for 11 days of the state fair and a place where you put the grandstand, I just don't think is the best use of that. I think we need to seriously start looking at whether it's time to parcel that off to private developers who are going to take responsibility for that, develop it, use it, help contribute to the tax base of the area, and pay, pay us for that. All right, 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. What do we do with the Milwaukee Mile? Tear it down, convert it to other uses, or do we continue to just sort of let it limp along as it's now, where, again, you use it as a parking lot for a bunch of days. And I understand they have some bicycling and things like that, but but nothing that's generating any sort of large revenue. What do you do? What is the future of the Milwaukee Mile? 414-799-1620. We discuss in a minute. If you're on the line, please hold on. 126, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 128, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Tom in Greenfield. Hi, Tom. Hi. How are you doing there, Jeff? Good. What would you do with the Milwaukee Mile? <laughs> I would have I had a... Uh races and stuff like that, you know, like they did in the old days. But if I had Donald Trump money, I'd level State Fair Park and built, have built a regular entertainment center uh, like we should have uh, had uh, with the, you know, with, instead of having an arena downtown there, having it in there like they do mm-hmm. out west, where they got multiple things in a multiple area to make some money and stuff. you got parking, you got 200 acres of land there. you got you got you got enough things that you could do with that thing and make it worthwhile. You're just getting a, a little piddly oh, oh, yeah. percentage on your money there for the overall uh, usage that you do with the Expo Center there and everything else that you do. And it's not it's not worth it. It really is. I'm, well I mean here I mean Tom thanks for coming here here's the I mean I mean here's the cost. I mean Journal Sentinel had these these numbers that are out there. Um, with, with all the different events that they do during the year they generate about two hundred eighty-six thousand dollars in revenue, which is is nothing. I mean, it's just that's two hundred eighty-six thousand dollars is a lot of money. I get that, but for a facility like that, that's that's nothing. On top of that, 
The, the debt service, what do they say? Even without the state fair is paying nearly $2 million annually in debt service, you know, on the facility. You, you have this potentially incredibly valuable asset that's sitting there and it is grossly underused. And I think if anybody thinks, you know, auto racing is going to come back in a big way to that area, I, I'm sorry, but it, it it's gone, auto racing has gone the way of, uh, again, the circus parade. It's gone the way of the GMO. It's just, as a practical matter, it's not coming back. And I mean, I think that you have to go in with that assumption that we have to figure out what the best use of that space is. And in a parking lot for 11 days simply isn't that. Maybe there's a developer that wants to, again, buy that and turn it into retail, turn it into residential, help give West Dallas a, a boost. I understand people are nostalgic for the races. I get it, but given the fact that it's it's not 1968 anymore, and Mario Andretti isn't you know driving the Indy cars, I think you have to figure out how is this going to work out for the next you know several decades. I appreciate that you take away that parking area, and you're going to have uh, again issues with state fair and things of the like for those 11 days. But it's not the best use of those resources. And we can't be nostalgic about it. There's just not the money. And hopefully the State Fair Board will come around to that way of thinking. They're not there yet, but hopefully they'll come around soon. It's 137, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. So glad to have you with us. Rudy Giuliani, uh, who I, I don't think there's any question that Rudy Giuliani has, over the last several years, has, has hurt his legacy. I mean, I, I knew... I, I had met, I'm not going to suggest I know Rudy Giuliani well, but I, I met him back when I was working in the U.S. Attorney's Office, and he was the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York. And he was he was kind of the, the crime-busting, let, let, let's go after the bad guys, you know, a, a, you know assistant, a U.S. Attorney back then. And even back then, he had this kind of reputation for, for bombast. The, the story, and, and I'm going to, I'm going to kind of get it a little bit wrong, but the, the essence was the, the story that they would tell about Giuliani is they're doing a press conference, and he, he's announcing, I don't know, some lawsuit that the U.S. Attorney's Office has filed, and it's like, well, you know, we're, we're going after this fill-in-the-blank. We're going after this developer for fraud or whatever, and um, somebody, some reporter says, okay, how, how, how much were the damages? You know, what, what are the damages? And Giuliani apparently turns to the assistant U.S. Attorney who's handling the case and and I says, what were the damages? And the guy says, four million. Giuliani says, thirty-two million. <laughs> that was just the kind of guy he was. It was sort of like he he was he would puff and all that. But you know, he went on to be the mayor of New York, and I think did an outstanding job as the mayor of New York. I mean, he was somebody who really, I think, contributed to the Renaissance of New York and um, you know, cleaning up the streets and things like that. Since then. I don't know. The, the post-mayor, Rudy Giuliani, has always struck me as somebody who's kind of been trying to find his way. You know, there was an aborted presidential campaign, what, back in 2000, was it eight, um, that, that never really got off the ground, which I always thought was kind of unfortunate, because I, I think if Rudy could have brought the same energy that he put when he was mayor of New York to this country, I, you know, I, I think he, he might have been a good president. But he's been, I, I think, floundering, and... Then he associated himself. He, he jumped on the Trump bandwagon early on. There was kind of a falling out, and now he's back, and he's the guy that's making the rounds of, you know, the various shows, talking about legal theories and advice to the president. And it seems like almost every day there, there's a different, you know, theory that he's you know thrown out. Well, over 
over the weekend, um, that he, he went on TV and started talking about the president's ability to to pardon himself. And what he what he said is he thinks the president has the the constitutional power to pardon himself if he if he chose. And on this point, by the way, I, I agree with him. I, I mean, I think I don't claim to be a constitutional scholar, and I, I and I don't know that it's ever been tested before. I, as a matter of fact, it hasn't been tested before. But I think the president probably does have that power. I don't think the the I, I don't think the Constitution limits that. I think he could pardon himself for pretty much anything. Giuliani goes on though to then start speculating. He says, "Well, I, I don't." He has no intention of pardoning him, pardoning himself, even though you know I think he can because I think this would be unthinkable. And the reality is, I believe, if President Trump were to pardon himself, the calls for impeachment would be overpowering. I, I think if he were to do it before the midterm elections. I think he pretty much guarantees. See, I think all these people that are talking about there being a blue wave, I think that blue wave is kind of ebbing. I, I think the dynamics are changing a little bit. The economy is going, is doing well. You've got the summit coming up with North Korea. I understand there's a lot of anti-Trump hatred that's out there, but I think the blue wave is ebbing. I think Republicans feel a lot better about their electoral chances than any time you know, since President Trump be- became president. I think if he were to pardon himself before the elections, that would pretty much um, revive it. I think it would be a debacle for the president, just like it and for the Republicans, just like it was a debacle in 1976 after Gerald Ford decided to pardon Richard Nixon. So I think that's one of the things that's going on. If if he were to wait until after the elections to pardon himself, I, I think. You, you invite a very strong challenge for impeachment. I don't believe right now that the president has, there's no evidence, at least at this point, to suggest that he has committed an impeachable offense. If he were to pardon himself, I think he would put himself in an absolutely untenable position. But this is where it kind of comes down to. The president either has to allow the Mueller investigation to run its course, or... The president, I guess, could consider using the nuclear option. He could put an end to all this. He could go in tomorrow and he could issue an executive order pardoning himself and pardoning Michael Cohen and pardoning anybody else who was the subject of the Mueller investigation. If he does that, though, I think it pretty much guarantees, number one, an electoral bloodbath for Republicans in November, and number two, guarantees that there will be impeachment proceedings started. All right, let's open up the phone lines, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. If we assume for the sake of argument that a president does have the power to pardon himself, should President Trump do it now or ever? 414-799-1620, that's the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. Again, I understand when we talk about President Trump, there's not a lot that we can find in, in agreement. The people who love President Trump love President Trump. The people who hate President Trump hate President Trump. Maybe this is an issue that we can all agree on, or, or maybe not. Should President Trump end the Mueller investigation by issuing pardons to himself and to anyone else associated with his campaign? 
414-799-1620. What do you think? We discuss next. It's 143. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 147, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. President Trump is touting the fact that he believes he has the authority to pardon himself. I actually think he does. Um, I, I think it's never been tested before, but I think he does have the power to do it. Just because you have the power to do it, though, doesn't necessarily mean it's something that you should do. But if he wanted to put an end to the Mueller investigation, if he believes that there's nothing here, if he believes this investigation is bad for the country, he could tomorrow issue a pardon for himself. He could pardon anybody associated with the um, investigation. Should he do that? Let's start with Connie on the east side. Hi, Connie. You're on WTMJ. Hi, how are you? I'm well, thank you. What do you? Th- how, how should the president well, handle this? I agree with you that pardoning himself would just open up another can of worms. But I do think that he's a man that sets timelines, and he should just say you've had more than ample time to come up with something. You have whatever it is, two months, three months, if you don't have this wrapped up by then, it's done. Stop spending the taxpayers' money. Nobody sees where this is going, including yourself, obviously. And he needs to at least put a timeline on this. And, okay, let, let's let's play this out. So let's say he, he comes out and he says, look, this is bad for the country. You've been doing this for over a year now. You've spent, what was the number, $17 million and rising. The meter's running here. You know, put up or shut up. And um, the special counsel just ignores it. Says, "Okay, I'm. I'm. It doesn't even make a statement. Says, okay, I'm, I'm going to continue doing this investigation. And if it takes three years, it takes three years. What if the special counsel calls the president's bluff? What does he do then? Why can't if he can have an executive order pardoning himself? Why can't he have an executive order shutting it down after three months? Well, I mean, he could. I mean, he, I mean, theoretically, he could." What you would have to do is he would have to order the guy, the number two guy in the Justice Department, you know, just, just like just like President Nixon, you know, they, they had the Saturday Night Massacre back in the seventies. Just like Nixon ordered the Attorney General to fire the Special Counsel, President Trump could order the, the guy at the Department of Justice. It's not Sessions; it's yeah, it's Rothstein or whatever to fire him. If he refused, he could then appoint somebody else and, and do that. So he he could order that. If he did that, though, do you think there would be a huge backlash among people? I think if he didn't shoot from the hip and gave it a timeline and said, listen, we've all been patient. Um, this is what I'm seeing. If they can't figure it out, we've all been more than patient waiting for something to come of this. Mm-hmm. And just kept drilling. I, I think the American people, they think a little bit with their pocketbook. And sure. once he keeps pulling out, 17 million or billion, however much has been, you know, gone towards this. Right. How much more of your hard-earned money are we going to spend? I think people will start waking up and thinking, yeah, well, just how much are we going to spend? How, yeah, how long, right, how long do you go, right? No, thank you. I mean, I, look, see, this is the, I mean, this is the battle he has. I, I mean, I understand what you're saying, Connie. Honestly, though, I think if if the president were to do that, to, to put a, a timeline on, say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to shut down this investigation after another four months. Um, the, the response that you're going to get from people, maybe not Mueller, but you're going to get is that, no, you can't put arbitrary time limits on things. And sometimes it, it takes all sorts of time, especially if the president's not going to be cooperating and not going to be sitting down and doing interviews, which I, I think he would be foolish to do. There's no way that the, the president, I think, sits down with Bob Mueller. He just 
Um, Because then you run the risk of getting yourself into what they call that perjury trap, where even if you didn't do anything criminal in the underlying thing, if you make a statement which turns out to be false, you end up getting, you know, indicted for perjury. So I, I just, I don't see that happening at all. And the problem is if you say you've got 90 days to wrap this up or 120 days to wrap it up, and the special counsel calls your bluff. All right, 120 days come, you haven't wrapped it up. So then what do you do? Then do you do you fire, do you order the deputy attorney general to fire the special counsel? And again, then then you're with Elliot Richardson. You're, you're back with the Saturday Night Massacre with, with Watergate. I don't know that you make the problem go away. I, I just, here's what I think the president does need to do. I, I think rather than talking about pardoning himself, which I believe, while maybe constitutionally permissible, would be absolutely politically disastrous for both the president. It would invite impeachment. Like I say, I don't think you've got an impeachable offense here. Um, it would invite impeachment. I think rather than talking about pardoning himself, if the president wants to go on the offensive, what the president needs to do is be talking about the things exactly like Connie was just talking about, where you come out and you say, look, this investigation has now spent $17 million. It's now been going on for a year. How much more of this do, do you know, it, it is clearly, it, it's something that is getting in the way of us being able to run the country. It is time for the special counsel to poop or get off the pot. You know, you, you got to, you cannot keep going on and spending this. That would be the approach I think would be better than talking about, you know, pardoning yourself, which I think would invite impeachment. And, and maybe that is a way to appeal to not the Trump haters, but to, to get the message across. Let's go back to um, Wisconsin a number of years ago where you had the, the recall election. I think one of the reasons that Governor Walker did so well in the recall wasn't simply the fact that lots of people agreed with Act 10, and it wasn't simply the fact that Tom Barrett was a lousy candidate, but I think that there were a lot of people who thought that a recall of Governor Walker over the issue of Act 10 was simply not the appropriate thing. And they just that okay, we have elections to elect politicians, they do what they want to do, and then you move on. I think that you could make the case to the American people that at some point in time, you need to you need to move on. You either have to have proof that there's been you know a crime that's committed, or you need to close it down because it ends up being a distraction. Will that bring the Trump haters around? No, it's not going to bring the Trump haters around. But at the same time, it might bring a chunk of the American people around. Um, you got to be careful as to how long that is. I, and I I don't know whether it's another you know three months or another six months. I do think at some point in time, it is fair to say that the investigation needs to either wrap up or it needs to result in, in charges. But you can't, you know, you can't do that. You can't allow the thing to continue for years and years. But I think that's the way, if I was advising him from a public relations perspective, that's what I would be saying. I'd say, focus on the cost. Say, look, I want a full and fair inquiry here. But how many more months is this going to go on month after month after month? Look how much this is costing. Maybe that's the way that you get the American people, or at least the ones that don't absolutely hate you, on your side. Um, a pardon, you are inviting impeachment. There's no question about it. Jim in Richfield. Jim, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hey. Hey, thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, you know, I, I truly believe that Mueller and the Democrats just need to keep this thing alive 
for the midterm. I think they'll drop some kind of strange October surprise, you know, that they've got something on him now and, you know, and they're going to, they're going to dump something right before the midterm. So Trump either has to end this thing soon or he's going to be dealing with this in the midterm. And, uh, you know, they'll, they'll basically say anything at that point. Okay. So how does he, how, tell me how he ends it. Do you fire, do you, do you order the attorney general, the deputy attorney general to fire Mueller? I mean, how do you, how do you end it as a practical matter? I do. I think that's what he has to do. And I think he has to hold a press conference, uh, kind of like a, uh, from the Oval Office type of thing at night. So everyone's watching and explain to the American people exactly what's going on and why this thing. Uh, I mean, everybody knows that if Bulger had something, he'd be out there by now, don't you think? Well, I, I think, I mean, thanks for call. I, I think, you know, after a year, if there was substantive stuff on the president, and you spent $17 million and you've got this army of lawyers, yeah, if, I mean, I was a prosecutor. I understand it's complicated. I understand it's complex. But, yes, I would have thought by now you should have been able to come up with something indictable if there was something indictable. My problem with your idea, Jim, again, is I'm old enough to remember – I mean, I'm old enough to remember the Watergate thing, and I'm old enough to remember when Nixon ordered the firing of the special prosecutor, and I saw how that blew up. I, I just, I don't want to live through that period of time again. It's 156. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Two eight, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. So glad to have you with us. All right, so Saturday, Saturday evening, my wife is working. I am left to my own devices, so it's me and the dog. I have, if you're a regular listener, you know I, I have this little dog, Pomeranian. Sasha just turned three years old. And she, together with my wife, are the lights of my life. So um, I'm, I, I picked up some meatloaf at like one of the, one of the, shop, the stores. So this, this is my big dinner on Saturday night. I'm sitting there. I, I've got the, these, these lumps of meatloaf. I mean, it's pretty pathetic. I'm the first one to acknowledge that. But okay. So... The dog is sitting there, and she's just looking up at me with these big eyes, and we, we don't feed her from the table um, because we, we don't want her begging and stuff. But it's a challenge for me. I'm, I'm the softy in, in the group. So she's like, mm-hmm. So I, I eat my, my two slabs of, of meatloaf, and I, I take a little bit of it at the end, and I kind of like chop it up. And I put it in her dish. That's the deal. And we sometimes will feed her at the end. And she just wolfs the whole thing down. You wolfs the whole thing down. Well, about five minutes later, I hear her starting to cough. And I'm like, oh, my God, what is this? And then she makes a beeline and runs from the kitchen where we have, like, laminated flooring into the living room and proceeds to yak up all over the carpet in the living room. She made a beeline to throw up on the area rug in, in the carpet. And now, now some people would of course be upset that the dog is throwing up the meatloaf that you gave her so on, on, on the carpet and, and that was not my reaction my reaction is god i can't believe i gave her this meatloaf and i made this dog sick i mean that's just how i am with the dog and it's like i i'm then this is all my fault i'm not mad at her at all i'm thinking oh my god what did i do did i poison this dog oh this is just terrible and then i figure i, I might be in trouble again actually fran was very cool when i came home and said well, dog threw up on the rug and I, I did my best to clean it up but but that's how I, I am it's like okay the dog is thrown up on the rug it is my fault i shouldn't have given her what i ended up giving her that's just how i am when it comes to this particular dog who is not i don't think of her as a pet i understand that she's a pet but she is part of our family and this kind of hit home because over the weekend there was this story of this Pomeranian 
And, and again, my dog is a Pomeranian, a little, little dog. There's a story of this Pomeranian who, who died on a Delta Airlines flight. Apparently what happened is that they put the dog, the dog did not fly in the passenger cabin. They put the dog in a crate. And the Pomeranians are little. I mean, my, my dog is five pounds. Some Pomeranians are bigger, but they're, we're not, these are small dogs. Put the dog in a crate. Um, shipped it in the cargo hold from Phoenix, Arizona, I believe, to Detroit, layover in Detroit, and then the flight was going to continue on to um, it's going to continue on to New Jersey. So this this the 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 dog is traveling cross country. They don't exactly know what happened, but when they had the layover, they, they found that the dog was sick and the dog ended up dying. Okay, this is of course not the first time that this has happened. Recently, you've had some of the high-profile stories, like the thing on was it Southwest or JetBlue, where you know the, the flight attendant had him put the dog carrier in the um, in the overhead bin, and the dog suffocated. But you're having more and more of these problems with dogs being placed in cargo holds and and traveling across the country. To which United Airlines is now starting to put new restrictions on pets traveling in cargo. For example, there are several airlines that United Airlines will no several airports that United Airlines will no longer accept pets in cargo areas. You know, passing through certain airports during the summer months. Um, Las Vegas is one. Phoenix is another. Palm Springs, Tucson, all because it's so hot that they're concerned that the dogs are going to you know suffocate. They're also putting, you know, other restrictions on the ability of people to be able to transport these dogs in the cargo holds. And all because I, I think they're concerned about the ability of, of uh, dogs to get there safely. I, I've been kind of processing this all. I have not flown with my dog. I, I haven't. And, again, my dog is small enough that if we ever did decide to take her on an airplane what we would do is, you know, we would we would put her. She could fit in a carry-on bag that would fit under the under the seat. Not sure how she would deal with that, but you know, we could keep her in the passenger compartment. But I appreciate if you're dealing with a larger type of dog, you you know, that's just not going to work. It's either if you're going to fly, you put the dog in cargo or or not. Obviously, lots of people do this, and I'm sure you probably have. But I, I've been thinking about this, this story, particularly since it involved a Pomeranian, since I saw it a couple of days ago. And th- this idea that you want to take your pets with you. At the same time, I, I just, I have to be honest. I don't think, forget I don't think, there is no way, there's no way that I would send my dog or my cat or whatever, there's no way I'd put them in a cargo hold of an airplane especially knowing all the different potential for the things that can happen. I just wouldn't do it. And I recognize that that means sometimes that you got to either leave the pet behind or you have to drive or you have to make alternative arrangements. But there's just no way in the world I, I would do that. And I don't think there's any way I would have done it before this story. But after this weekend, I, I just wouldn't do it. I just wouldn't feel safe tra- transporting my pet in that fashion. And I know people do this all the time. I get it. But I wouldn't be that guy. 
414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I want to kind of have this broader conversation. Do you have a hesitation traveling with pets on airplanes and putting them in the cargo area of those planes, knowing that there's not going to be anybody that's going to be attending them for the duration of the flight, and knowing, you know, the, the I guess the vast unknown as to what could happen. 414-799-1620, we discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. I understand this was a freak accident. I get it, but there's no way in God's green earth that I would send my dog in a cage in a cargo area of a plane, period. What about you? Let's uh, discuss. 414-799-1620. If you're on the line, please hold on. 215, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 414-799-1620. Okay, story over the weekend. A Pomeranian, those are little dogs. Pomeranian dies being transported across the country. The flight is Phoenix to Detroit, and then there's a layover, Detroit to Newark. Um, the dog is apparently alive, but not well. When it gets to Detroit, it ends up dying in its crate. This is not the first time these types of things have happened. I couldn't put my dog on in a cargo hold of a plane. I just couldn't do it. Jason in Mequon. Jason, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hey, afternoon, Jeff. Hi. Um, there's no way on God's green earth that animals were ever born or raised or bred to fly in an airplane. Um, they don't have our proper oxygen levels found in the cargo hold. Uh, number one, the pressure on their ears, number two. And number three is people that carrying them on their laps and stuff like that. I always talk about you don't have a right not to be a friend in this country. Well, I am offended when some person brings their little lap yupper in there and sparking the entire flight down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess, I mean, I, I guess, well, I mean, I come at it from a different perspective as somebody who, who owns one of these little dogs. But it, it'd be one thing, I, I understand that, I mean, you can make that same argument about you know people bringing babies on the airplanes, and I understand babies are different than dogs and the screaming kids or the the, the seven year old kid that's kicking your seat behind there. I, I do think you know if you're going to take your dog on the plane, you have a responsibility to make sure that the dog is going to be able to be controllable and isn't going to, for example, bark for you know two hours. I get all that. I'm just I'm back with this larger point as a pet owner. I just I couldn't put my dog in a crate. And then put them in the cargo hold for a lot of those reasons you're talking about, Jason. You just, you just, you can't get to them. You don't know what's going to happen. And it's a risk that I wouldn't take. Um, here we have a text. I don't understand why a person would want to take a pet on vacation. On vacation. Well, I mean, I think that's a, that's kind of a fair question too, other than the fact that people are very much attached to their pets. But t- to me, if I was going to take my pet with me on vacation, it would be, that's one where I think I'm seriously thinking about we're going to drive. And, and yeah, that means it's a lot more convenient to fly because um, you're there in a couple hours. But, yeah, if you're going to go to Florida and for some reason I decide I want the dog with me, um, I, we're driving. We're going to take the extra day or two. I just, I under no circumstances could I put the pet in the cargo hold of, of a plane, in a crate. I just couldn't do it. Jake in Caledonia says, what are people thinking putting their dogs in crates and airplanes? I could never do this and live with the potential consequences. Yeah, that's that. That's the issue that's there. And I think airlines are wrestling with this now as well because airlines are sitting there saying, okay, well, this is it's difficult to transport this. We're taking this responsibility and we're not necessarily equipped to do it. I mean, 
it, it's enough of a challenge if you're going to fly unaccompanied minors, but putting animals in crates that are stuck in the cargo holds of planes, completely and totally different situation. No question, you know, uh, about it. I just, um, I just don't see, I just don't see that, um, as a way to do it. I, I just don't. Um, I could never, I could never do it. Period. 221, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's 223, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. All right, got a story I've been waiting all day to discuss with you. I'm curious as how you react to this. Screw, who's producing the show today and always. Do you play the lottery? Do you buy scratch-off tickets and things like that? When you go up north to Escanaba, you go to the casino. Okay, my question was, do you go and buy, like, scratch-off lottery tickets? Like was, No, you don't. Okay, you don't. No, I don't either. I I. I, I don't either, and I don't I don't play the I I will buy a mega bucks ticket when it's like stupid money when it's like four hundred million because twenty million wouldn't be life changing but four hundred million it, it, I don't understand my mentality but I'll, I'll I'll do that but I I am not a lottery ticket player and I certainly don't buy the the scratch offs although my late mother used to love them. I mean, that was like for her birthday or Christmas. You know, you'd go out and you'd get her twenty bucks worth of scratch off. She was in heaven. So I, I understand that there's people who do it. I just think, I just think the odds are are awful. All due respect to people who run the Wisconsin lottery. I think you're just as soon. You, you know, you might as well just go take ten dollars, sit in the gas station parking lot, and light it on fire. But I understand there's people who who play that. Well, here's the story out of South Carolina, um, starting. At 6 o'clock last Christmas Day, 6 o'clock p.m. on Christmas Day evening, they they made available this thing they called the Holiday Cash Scratch-Off Game. It was called Holiday Cash Add-A-Play. The tickets couldn't be bought alone, but they could be added after players purchased a ticket from another game. So they have all these other scratch-off things. You could buy, you have to buy that, but then you could also buy this special holiday thing on top of it. Um, here's the way it worked. Um, the holiday cash add a play worked like tic-tac-toe. Players saw a grid with nine boxes, each containing a Christmas or winter-related image, like a wreath, an evergreen tree, whatever. Each grid costs a dollar. Three Christmas trees in a row, horizontally, vertically, or diagonally, means a cash prize up to $500 for each grid. Okay, so that's one of these scratch-offs. All right, well, what could go What could go wrong? Well, for two hours on Christmas Day, many players were surprised to find that their grids were filled entirely with star-topped evergreens. The, the vendor that made, that made the that produced the grids, had screwed up. And instead of, you know, I mean, they have a percentage. You know, instead of 5% of, of the lottery cards supposed to be winners, like all of them were winners. <laughs> Oops. All of them were winners. The word quickly got out that all of these were winners. And what happened is, after two hours... I mean, uh, all these things started to be turned in for winners, and people heard about, people found out about this. Like, you know, you you go to a gas station, you buy like five of these, you scratch them off, and every one is a winner. And you go, you know, 
holy crap, Batman, you know, these are all winners. So then you go back, you buy more, five more, they're all winners. All right, so for the first, it took about two hours for the lottery folks to realize what was going on here, that they had a problem. And so they suspended, they suspended all the sales of the lottery tickets after two hours. Well, a number of people were able to cash in. Matter of fact, they estimate that there was about $1.7 million that was paid out in this first two hours to people who, oh, my gosh, I've got the Christmas trees here. Go back and, and get it. They estimate they paid about $1.7 million to the people who were able to cash in the first two hours. Okay. Then they suspended it, said there's something wrong here. We're not going to pay any more. Well, there were a lot of other people that had winning tickets where, you know, they, they had these tickets that they bought in the two-hour window that they hadn't cashed in. So now you, you've got these things. The lottery has suspended the sale and the distribution of the proceeds. So if you got in in the first two hours and you cashed it before they shut it off, you got your money and they're not coming after you. But now you have all these people that are sitting there and they have these tickets that they bought in that two-hour window that they want to collect. Here's the way the story appears in the New York Times. Quickly, thousands of lottery players in South Carolina thought Christmas was their lucky day. Then it goes on to talk about, you know, how they got them. Um, they quote some 36-year-old lady who realized what was going on. She had a bunch of winners, but instead of cashing them in, she bought more tickets. Um, we figured we'd buy a car, take the kids to Disneyland, saying that she and a few other family members kept playing the game until they amassed what they thought were thousands of dollars in winners. But now they're not able to cash in because, again, the lottery says this was a mistake. We fired the vendor, etc. So they are now suing, saying we should be entitled to our, our winnings. Um, they estimate that before they shut off the game, there were about $35 million in potential guaranteed winning tickets that were sold. The South Carolina lottery paid out $1.7 million, but there's still another you know, $33 million bucks, give or take. They are trying to collect the lottery saying, no, 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 no. You know, th- this, these were mistakes. And you know, the rules of the lottery clearly say that we are not, you know, liable for um, we are not liable for things that are, you know, arises from a ticket produced or issued in error. So we're not going to honor this. We will give you your dollar back, but we're not going to give you the money. Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. What do you think? Should they have to pay? In this case, it would be thirty some million dollars to hundreds of people who gobbled up all these tickets um, but haven't been able to cash them. 414-799-1620, who deserves the dough? I'll tell you where I come down on this, and we'll discuss in just a couple minutes, but what's the fair thing to do? What's the legal thing? What's the right thing to do? We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. Right now, 2.30, let's go to the WTMJ Breaking News Center. Here's Eric Bilstead. The decision to limit participation in a Democratic gubernatorial debate is drawing sharp criticism and calls for candidates to boycott the event. This debate's being put on by the Wisconsin Broadcasters Association. The WBA says it will only allow four of the ten candidates to participate in its debate in late July. 
They would be the top four based on the most recent Marquette University Law School poll. Now, the liberal group One Wisconsin Now is urging all 10 Democrats to boycott the event, and a Wisconsin Democratic Party spokeswoman is asking WBA to reconsider. The city of Milwaukee is using a law firm to investigate allegations of harassment and bullying in the city health department. The Journal Sentinel reporting at least two health department employees have filed formal complaints. They did so in March. And the White House says President Trump hasn't done anything wrong and wouldn't need a pardon. This after the president tweeted himself that he could pardon himself if he wanted to. Time for the WTMJ Drake and Associates market update. Right now, the Dow is up 177 to 24,812. The NASDAQ is up 47 to 7601. The S&P is up 12 to 2746. WTMJ Pella, WI.com, time saver traffic. 94 outbound from downtown all the way out to Highway 16. Looking good, 17 minutes. 4145 southbound from Highway Q to the zoo is fine. That's 15. Further south, you got issues again today. It's a slow ride on 894 South. From the zoo to the hail right now, it's about a 12-minute trip through the barrels there, so about a 7-minute delay through the hail. 43 outbound from downtown up to Brown Deer Road is 12 minutes. That's right on time. And 94 outbound from the Marquette to Layton, also looking good right now. That's a 7-minute trip. Traffic is sponsored by Toro. Count on it. Fast, comfortable, and heavy duty. It's the Toro Time Cutter Zero Turn Riding Mower with My Ride Suspension. You have to see this mower. In Brookfield, see Bill's Power Center. In Milwaukee, see Gilo's Lawn and Garden. The WTMJ 5 Day Forecast. For today, sunny, windy, maybe an isolated shower, high of 78. Tonight, scattered showers, a low of 57. Tuesday, a lingering rain possible early on, otherwise partly cloudy, a high of 70. Wednesday, sunny, high of 72. Thursday, some scattered showers, a high of 80. Friday, an isolated shower chance in a high of 79 inland. Right now in Milwaukee, 78 degrees. I'm Eric Bilstead, News Radio, WTMJ. And I'm Jeff Wagner. Coming up next, is the lottery screwing over a bunch of potential winners? Stick around. 235, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Okay, 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Here, here's the story if you're just tuning in. Last Christmas Day, South Carolina Lottery rolls out this special holiday add-on lottery thing. you got to buy a regular you know, scratch-off lottery ticket, but for an extra buck, you can buy this special lottery card that's like a tic-tac-toe setup, and you scratch it off. And if you get three things in a row, like evergreen trees or wreaths or whatever, you win like $500 or something a square. Okay, that, that, that's great. Well, what happens is the company that manufactured these for the lottery screws up, and all the tickets they produce are winners. They're all like that. So what happens is there's people who buy these, and for about two hours, they're selling all these lottery tickets that are are winners. The state lottery gets wind of this, and they shut off sales after two hours, and they say, we're not going to honor these things because they were made by mistake. Now, if you purchase one of these things in that two-hour window, and you cashed it in right away, well, you, you get to keep your money. They're, they're not trying to figure out, I don't even know if they even can, they're not going back and trying to take away the money. They paid out about $1.7 million in this two-hour period. But there's another $35 million in cards that were purchased in this two-hour window that weren't cashed in during that two-hour window. So now you have all these people that are out there saying, wait a second, we've got all these quote-unquote winning tickets. We want our money. And the lottery is saying, no, 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 you're not going to be able to cash these in. 
If you want, we'll give you your dollar back. But these were tickets that were issued in error. And according to state law, we're not responsible for prizing, prizes arising from a ticket produced or issued in error. So you are out of luck. They have fired the vendor that produced it. Okay, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. Is South Carolina being unreasonably restrictive? The people that bought these, well, when they first bought them, you know, they didn't know it was an error. Now, the truth is, once what happened is, there's lots of people that saw, they bought a couple of them, they scratched them off, they saw everyone was a winner, and then they ran back and they started buying more and more. Their mistake was they didn't catch the money in right away, but they amassed it. 414-799-1620, that's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Uh, let's see, let's start with a text line. Seems very, this is um, Austin and Madison, seems very similar to issues with the malfunction voids all play at casinos. It's rough that people can't cash in, but it is written in the lottery rules. Um, okay, let's see, got another text here. Uh, they should pay. All right, 414-799-1620. Dave in Waukesha. Dave, you're in WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hey, Jeff, how you doing? Good. What do you think? Uh, they should have to pay because having come from the printing field myself, um, printers are required to, especially in any kind of contest or anything with coupons or anything related to that, to have uh, printers' errors and omissions uh, bonding, um, which means basically if it's supposed to be 50 cents and you actually print, you accidentally print $500, mm-hmm. you know, that insurance covers it. So, I mean... Well, my understanding is that for the the money that was paid out in this two-hour window, that they are actually going after the company that produced it. They're saying, hey, you know, you're responsible for, you know, you're responsible for paying us what happened before we caught the mistake. But they're saying once we caught the mistake, we should have no obligation, since we all agree it was a mistake, we should have no obligation to honor the ones once we knew there was a problem. No, see, I mean, technically, that's not the way it really works. Is because once it's released, regardless, like, again, using kind of a coupon type analogy, uh, once it's out there, that's the whole reason, you know, for having the bonding. You know, mm-hmm. the state should have made sure that they, you know, the lottery or whatever, should have made sure that they had the proper bonding and everything else in case of, you know, these types of, again, but you think once they catch the mistake, once they realize that there is a mistake, you think they have an obligation to continue to honor the payments even though it was produced by mistake? Yeah. Okay, thanks for calling. I guess, see, I guess that's what's, what the issue is going to be. It's like, let's take an example. All right, we'll use, we'll use an example. You, you run an ad. You, you know, you run an ad that says, airfare round trip from Milwaukee to Hawaii, 50 cents. And it's supposed to be $500, but they, they missed the decimal point or or whatever. The airline catches it, recognizes it's a mistake, and refuses to honor those. I mean, just because there's the mistake, does that mean that the person that you have to honor every one of them before you understand, even including after you caught the mistake? 414, I, see, I, I guess I, I disagree. I, I mean, I think this is a situation where... It is sort of like the error voids everything um, that you have at the different, you know, casinos. And to be honest about this, 
I think a lot of the people that are out there don't come in with what I would call completely clean hands. I think a lot of the people that played this, especially like the one that the New York Times talks about, they knew something was think- was was funny. I mean, they 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 saw, oh, I've got winners, and I've got winners, and I've got winners, and let's go buy more. Oh, these are all winners. They, I think, they knew that there was a problem. To me, this is kind of like, I don't know, that the folks that. Go to the gas station, and the the employee sets the wrong price of gas, and it's supposed to be three dollars, and instead they set it for three cents, and they leave work, and then what happens is everybody realizes that oh, there's this mistake here. I'm going to line up, and I'm going to take advantage of it. To me, I, I think that's that's more of the situation here. Ned on the South Side. Ned, you're on WTMJ. Hello. How are you doing today? Well, thank good. Thank you. What do you think the lottery should do here? I think they're doing exactly what they should be doing. Um, The people that had turned their tickets in and gotten paid for them, they're not going after those people. They're saying, okay, we made a mistake. You keep that money. But the people that didn't turn the tickets in are only going to get their dollar refund or whatever. I think that's exactly what they should be doing. I think the people that are trying to get that money, you know, it's, it's a rough world we live in, and everyone's trying to get paid, Jeff. Yeah. So you think, I mean, the state is within its reason. We caught the mistake. Once we knew it was the mistake, we shut this thing off, period. And that's when the cat, that's the cash spigot shuts off. Exactly. They did the right thing. Yeah. Thanks. I, I do too. I mean, I, I think, again, it's, it's clearly a mistake. If they were going back, and I'm with you, Ned, if they were going back and trying to collect the money from the people who cashed in these tickets during that two hour window on Christmas Eve, I might have a different opinion, but once you know that something has been produced in error, I mean, I I think at that point in time, you just have an obligation to say, all right, look, this this has been a mistake. We've now caught the mistake, and we're not going to continue to honor these, these tickets that were sold in error. All right, yes, we were paying off the slot machine that was malfunctioning, but now that we know it is malfunctioning, Boom, you know, we're we're going to cut it off. You don't have a right to continue to play. John in Oshkosh. John, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Yes, uh, pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, Hi, you know, I agree. I agree uh, with the last caller there. I mean, this is, uh, in uh, all fairness, the state was a, a victim of a, of a mistake. Uh, now, I, I do have one question about this lady that you said uh, bought a bunch of tickets. Yep. And since he was going to get a car and... Yeah, trip to Disneyland, yeah. How much does he spend on tickets? And are they going to reimburse her for every ticket that she bought? Well, they... I I can see one person bought a ticket for a buck, give him his buck back, but... Well, I, I, well, I mean, I, I don't, I mean, what they're going to do now, thanks to call, what they're going to do is they'll give you, they'll give you your dollar back. So if you bought 50 tickets or 100 tickets, they'll give you $100 back. They'll, they'll give you your money back. What they won't do is give you $500 a, a ticket. What this lady that they're talking about in the New York Times, which she's probably really kicking herself for, is instead of cashing the thing in right away. See, that, that that's where, I guess if you want to talk about a mistake, that's where you make the mistake. Once you, see, when, when something's, if something seems too good to be true, it is too good to be true. And I, I think this, the, the lady that they're featuring, the, the people that amass these tickets, um, they knew most of them. Now, I understand maybe there were some that didn't scratch them off right away, but my guess is the vast majority of people who bought these saw they were winners. They knew something, like I say, was hinky. Um, and, and their mistake, of course, was 
not cashing the thing in right away if they wanted the dough. There's going to be a lawsuit. My guess is the state ends up winning, but I, I guess, you know, I, I could be wrong. Let's see here. We have a text. Once they've discovered the error, the state has an obligation to mitigate further damage to the printing company um, if they're going to go after them for the first two hours. Here's somebody else that says, you should just do the right thing. And to me, the right thing is to just say, here's your money back. This was a mistake. Sorry. It's 245. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 249, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Okay, Gru, this is a test. Do you know who Supreme Moore Omakundi is? You do not. Well, well, let me give you the background on this. He's Gwen Moore's kid. Gwen Moore, the congressman. He's Gwen Moore's kid. Um, Supreme Moore Omakundi was originally Sawundi Omakundi. Omakundi. Then, then he went by the name Supreme Solar Allah. And now he calls himself Supreme Moore Omakundi. He is a member of the county board. Like I say, he's, he's Gwen Moore's kid. Um, he's just announced that he is running to be a state representative. Um, Leon Young, who's uh, the, the, the state representative, he's stepping down. He's not going to run for re-election. And now what's happening is, again, Gwen Moore's kid is, is going to run for the Supreme Moore Omakundi. Now, the reason why... And again, it's a little bit difficult keeping track of the various names. But the reason why that name might ring a bell for some people is because when Supreme Solar Allah or Supreme Moore Omakundi is around, no tire is safe. Back in 2000, this is, this is where we are in Milwaukee politics. If you have been around here for a while, you might remember back in 2004 when President Bush was running for re-election. Very, John Kerry was, this is during the Iraq War, a lot of, you know, a lot of controversy and stuff. Democrats thought that they were going to win. And what happened is the Republican Party had a get-out-the-vote effort, and they had rented 25 vans that they were going to use to take voters to the polls. Um, back in 2006, uh, Gwen Moore's, kid and um at the time i think he was using the name supreme solar solar allah but now he's supreme more omakundi was one of several guys who came up with this this plan that they were going to go out and slash the tires on the vans that were going to be used to transport republican voters to the polls I, i've always thought there's this irony for everybody that that whines about the unicorns, oh, there's these evil Republicans who are, you know, all about voter suppression. By heaven forbid, making somebody prove who they are before they vote with a photo ID. I mean, the ultimate voter suppression was these guys who decided, here, we're going to go out and slash tires. In any event, he um, ended up pleading no contest to misdemeanor property damage for slashing the tires on 25 vans um, rented by Republicans. I, I always actually thought the the charges should have been more severe, but um, he was sentenced to four months in jail with work release privileges and fined $1,000. That, I guess, in certain parts of this community is not a disqualifying factor and rather appears to be a badge of honor because he was subsequently elected to the county board and now appears poised to you know, be elected to the state assembly I guess the message for all this would be if that, in fact, happens, 
Um, Republicans, you know, watch watch your watch the tires on your cars if you're parking out in Madison. But um, that's who you know. These people don't just go away; they end up advancing in politics, and that's one of the situations. One of the other stories I just want to comment on that broke over the weekend. It's just. It's one of these that you just want to take your head and bang it against the, the, the desk. I understand that being young is sometimes an excuse to be immature and to do dumb things. At the same time, there are limits. New Berlin West, you know, they, they ask you for seniors to give yearbook quotations, and then they put them in the yearbook. You get some idiot senior who decides that um, his yearbook quotation is going to be the phrase, there will always be one true final solution. Now, if you don't know, that is a reference to the Nazi Germany plan to exterminate Jewish people. That, that's, that's what that quotation is. And this moron decides to put that in the yearbook. And the, the people who review the yearbook at New Berlin West don't catch it. All right, they, I, they're busy. They don't catch it. And so the thing gets distributed. And so people start seeing this, and they're going, oh, my God, what's going on here? And so you know, they stop the distribution of the yearbook. They make arrangements to get things that you can cover this up in the yearbook. I, I don't fault the folks at New Berlin West. Should they have caught it yet? Probably, but I understand. It's just it doesn't register. They're probably reviewing these things for profanity and stuff like that, and it just doesn't register, but it's clearly inappropriate. Here's what should happen, though, to the moron kid that did this. So far... At least to my knowledge, they are not releasing his name. If you want to talk about appropriate penalties and public shaming, what they should do is make the name of this kid public. This is somebody who thought this was funny or whatever. If you want to deter this type of behavior moving forward, publicize the name. And maybe, I understand, maybe some kids are going to want to get their 15 minutes of fame, but my guess is a lot of others might be deterred from this if they would be publicly humiliated for, in this case, the anti-Semitic remarks that they made. 255, when we come back, we're going to find out what John and Melissa have on their minds. Please stick around.